0: langa Zanzi and welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a no-holds-barred podcast that is proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. I'm your host, Nolutando Ngakani, and I am here to hold your hand as you seek the answers to those medical shames and woes you dare not speak of in public. You know Valentine's Day can be a really tough time when you are single or even have a roster full of sneaky links. Love is in the air, right? More like seasonal depression is in the air. Aisle after aisle you must navigate this capitalist holiday filled with cheesy cards and overpriced sweets. Not gonna lie, I am perfectly happy being single but it is really a bit of an awkward holiday to do this in peace child and it seems I am not alone in my disdain for this holiday. A friend in crisis in Bloemfontein says she just got out of a situation and wonders if she will ever love herself after yet another failed relationship. Our nonza writes, I have never been someone who particularly cares about Valentine's Day. Either way, it is my trigger. My partner cheated on me and decided to spend the day with his new girlfriend on Valentine's Day last year. Anyways, heartbreak aside, I am looking for new ways that I can move on and love myself. Well, Anonza, baby, I got you. Our guest is clinical psychologist Maria Kluta. Kluter has a master's in clinical psychology and community counseling and is based in Cape Town. She also specializes in narrative therapy, which is a style of therapy that helps people become and embrace being an expert in their own lives. Since it's February and it's the month of love. Can we differentiate between what romantic love is and the real love? And what are the different kinds of love that one, you know, kind of comes across?
1: Romantic love is obviously a lot of psychological processes, but also biological.
0: It's a lot more about
1: that sexual attraction on an unconscious level, a primitive brain. that's kind of like, oh, I really dig this person and think we would be good at procreating together. So it's a lot more about that attraction and sexual energy and that sort of ties in with the Eros love as we often talk about it or as it's defined. It's where we really just almost feel that our boundaries merge and we can't believe, we feel like we're just alike with this person and we think the same way, we almost complete each other's sentences and it's almost like a giving up or a collapse of our ego boundaries, we say psychologically. So you'll soon see two people that are almost joined at the hip, they almost can't be without one another can't breathe or live without one another so obviously a lot of oxytocin one of the hormones that's very much involved with love and bonding is that oxytocin so just like we need oxygen to breathe oxytocin or love we need love to also carry on living to be alive so romantic love is really all about that you know where we feel the world revolves around love and I could just live on love love and water and not need anything else don't need to eat or sleep or do any of the other basic needs But yes, that's just the romantic love stage. And I think it's very important, especially in February month, that we remind people that romantic love or falling in love really is just a stage or a phase. It's impossible for it to last forever. That's why the fairy tales and the movies always end when the people meet, they're still very happily in love and they just got married. But, you know, real life only begins after the wedding day in terms of real love and real commitment and the love for our children, obviously, and all the other kinds of love. So, yes, in terms of the other kinds of love, there's obviously the portfolio love. It's more like that brotherly love like we would have for a good friend. And I think that's important to note that we actually, as human beings, also form selective attachment. We don't just become best friends with everyone. But there will be friends that really are closer than a brother or a sister that we really regard as brothers or sisters from another mother that we really love and that we really are close to. And that would also release those same kind of oxytocin, those feel-good hormones that would help with our dopamine levels in our body. And actually physically or physiologically, it actually has amazing benefits for us. So there's that kind of love. And then obviously as parents, like other mammals, really, we really spend a lot of our time and energy on parenting. And that's also obviously a very important kind of love. Also has a neurobiological and neurochemistry basis, of course, as I say, from the moment of birth with my little one, the oxytocin helps you to actually give birth to the baby for your milk production to start and then for the bonding to start. For those that are interested, there's so much out there now. There's a new Netflix series that's actually very sweet. It's called Babies. And they also actually show, you know, how even homosexual couples who adopt a child or even parents who adopt a child also develop those same levels of bond in their brains, the areas of our brain that are responsible for that bonding and those neuropeptides, those hormones like the oxytocin would also actually be released. And that would enable us to take care and nurture of, of those little ones. So they actually say a little baby almost forces us to love it. Just being in the presence of a little baby, you would see adults, even if it's not your child, You would see other adults suddenly looking at that baby's face and saying, oh, you know, cute, oh, kuchiku. And that's because those oxytocin levels are immediately raised in our body. So there's obviously that love as parents that we have. And then obviously towards God or whatever your higher power religious beliefs are. But obviously there's that higher kind of altruistic love, we would almost say. So agape or other love that we would say, where we really have that compassion just towards any of our similar kind of humans. Just because we are humankind, we have compassion, we look towards others, we want to help and serve them. Like the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, for example. Wonderful ability to just cry when you see somebody else with suffering, you know, or to laugh with people. To connect that social bonding and that kind of love. And that's very important, So obviously as a species even from the earlier days when we were still living in the primitive wild as different tribes or whatever we were it was very important that we were able to have that bonding so that those hormones like the oxytocin and that that really enabled us to have those bonding to form communities so people could hunt together gather together look after their children together look after the elderly and those kind of connections that really are vital to us as human beings not just for our physical survival, as I say, but also emotionally, psychologically. It has very important effects on us.
0: Why is love important?
1: Well, as I briefly touched on, I think already, love is really essential to our survival. So basically, after our physical needs are met, you know, they've actually done a lot of studies. As I said, don't ask me to quote you the researchers' names and dates. I always forget those things. They've done a lot of studies on love as far as they can, obviously, often studying mammals and similar animals when it actually comes to the neurobiology because they don't want to mess around and treat humans like lab rats anymore. But definitely in terms of physical development, little children or babies, for example, who are not touched, which obviously touched, which would just be one of the examples. If you think of the love languages, I'm sure you've heard of Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, which would also just be ways that love are demonstrated. So things like words of affirmation, physical affection, quality time, gifts. Little babies, for example, that are not touched actually physically would fail to thrive and develop, as well as children who are touched. So they did studies on premature babies, for instance, where they the mothers obviously hold them a lot, do a lot of skin to skin where the babies are born prematurely, and how those babies grew much better than babies who were not given that same level of physical touch which is how the whole kangaroo care actually developed for premature babies where the mother actually has to as part of the medical treatment, you know, not just as a nice to have, but as part of the medical physical treatment to hold that baby close to them, skin to skin. So it's actually amazing how love would literally stimulate physical growth. Love in the form of now, obviously, physical touch and the oxytocin that goes with it would literally help those babies to physically grow as well as then psychologically. So obviously as a psychologist, I'm very interested in the attachment formation and relationships in our early childhood, especially from our early caregivers. They form the basis and the pattern for our social interaction, our engagements with others as we grow older. So literally in terms of our nervous system, there's the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and our autonomic nervous system is literally something that we don't consciously control. Something that our heart rate, our heart beats without us having to think about it our breathing you know our blood circulation all those functions that happen normally our digestion they happen on an unconscious level with our parasympathetic nervous system being in control of that so the parasympathetic nervous system has two branches the dorsal vagal and the ventral vagal and that ventral vagal is actually responsible for social engagement so social engagement is not something that we just train behaviorally teach people how to do Some people literally, because of their biology, because of obviously also epigenetics can have an influence, obviously also genetics could play a role, but literally how your environment, for those who aren't familiar with the term epigenetics, it basically just means that our body has different genes, of course, and different chromosomes, etc. But based on our environment, certain genes are going to be activated. Certain genes in terms of if we are well nurtured, we would be better able to respond to stress, for example. A baby who has received appropriate, you know, love and connection with their parents, who's protected from harm. They would actually be much better able to socially engage. If a mother makes eye contact with her baby and has that physical touch, their ability to tolerate stress, literally in terms of hormones like the stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, their response to those stressful situations is much better and their nervous system is able to regulate much better than children, we're not given that. So if children are deprived of that love and attachment from their parents, we literally end up with higher levels of stress in the body, which means high levels of irritability, aggression. And unfortunately, obviously, I think we see a lot of that in our society with the levels of violence, the levels of crimes that there are out there, unfortunately, just tells me that, sure, we need to teach people about bonding. You know, we need to teach people about the importance of love. And especially in those early years when our brain and our biological development is just absolutely, but up until two, three years of age, kids just explode in terms of their neurological development, their brain, but then our different neural pathways begin to get established. And if we consistently, are, of course, met with a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion, then that will be the response that we have. That will be our response to the rest of the world
0: there's a buzzword to kind of emerge in our society now is you know self-love you know what does unconditional self-love look like and what does it mean to love yourself you know my immediate response was do you even know
1: yourself do you even know that you have a relationship with yourself as i was giving the examples of love it's so easy i realized even for myself to talk about our relationship with others say our friends or our parents or our children but very often, people live so far from themselves, they don't even know. I've got a self and I've got a relationship with myself. So, I think an important sort of first step is just even that self knowledge. People realize actually, I have a self, I have an identity, which was obviously influenced, as I've already explained, very much by my upbringing, whether there was this emotional attunement or neglect or whatever there was. And this has impacted on myself. And that unfortunately impacts, obviously, on our, broadly, our self-esteem, so our view or perception of ourselves. And then, obviously, some people regard the self as a core identity. Some people regard us as having a whole family of selves, which doesn't mean we're schizophrenic, but we've got different parts of ourselves, you know? So I quite like the some of the therapies that I'm busy doing where we learn about the different parts of ourselves. And all it's under when you're at work, for example, is going to be different from when you're home or when you're out with your friends on a weekend. And just getting to know those different parts of ourselves. But yes, so if we talk about unconditional love, it means love without conditions. So if you think of all the conditions we often put upon love, sometimes we will only love ourselves when we've now done our gym exercises this morning. I've been to my Pilates class this morning. Let me pat myself on the back. Yay. Exercise done for the day. Have I been eating healthy? You said you're doing a lot of the food blog posts. You know, have I been eating healthy today? Did I wash the dishes last night? Whatever those conditions would be that make us now a good human being or good enough person. So unfortunately, very often our love is really conditional. And I say this easily because I recognize it even in myself still. As a psychologist, you would think I should know better. So all those statements that we often make, oh, I should have rather cleaned the house this weekend, instead of allowing myself to relax. when I mean, actually, we needed to relax. Would be examples of where we conditionally love ourselves. When we suddenly label ourselves and talk to ourselves and say, oh, that was so stupid. You know, you're such an idiot for doing whatever, you know, whether it's breaking a glass, whether it's forgetting something that we should have done. When we talk to ourselves with these derogatory terms, it's an example of where we are not obviously being self-loving. So sometimes it's easier saying what love would be also by looking at what it's not. So when we would say we have unconditional self-love, it would mean even when we make mistakes, we can still say, hey. You're actually an okay person. You're good enough. Even when we maybe don't get that, what would it be for teenagers? Even if I don't get 100% on a test. Or even if all the guys in my class, or even if none of the guys in my class ask me on a date, as a student, if my friends get more attention than me, it would mean still saying, hey, I'm still a worthwhile person. I'm still good enough to be loved. But obviously, our identity and as I say, our self-esteem is very much impacted on by social interactions. So it can, of course, have a big impact if there is a lot of bullying or teasing or really, obviously, a lack of positive regard from others. But imagine if we could give ourselves that complete, unconditional, positive regard that just says, no matter what I do, no matter where Maria messes up, no matter how many mistakes she makes, I will still be good enough. And I think what's interesting is very often people think if we say that, it will mean we actually become lazy. You know, we, we almost motivate ourselves out of, a, I think, reverse psychology, people would call it. When parents tell a child, no, man, you can do better, even when they get 80% or 90%. Oh, I had a client the other day, she gets 98%. And her dad or mom would hardly lift an eyebrow and be like, oh, where's the last 2%? You know, you get 98% and it's still not good enough. And it's actually not a motivating factor. It can actually become very demotivating. People struggle and start struggling with anxiety and achievement performance anxiety because they just feel like it's never good enough, never mind the effort that I do put in. So imagine if we could say to ourselves, you know what, it's okay that you didn't get 98% or 100%. You actually tried really hard and well done. You actually did really well. So if we could praise ourselves, well, if it's, or say, oh, you know, it was a really difficult test. Maybe that's why I didn't get my 80% but only got my 60% or whatever the case might be. And my worth is not defined by my marks. I'm still a good enough person. Whether I'm getting 90 or 60 whether I'm driving my Ferrari or my Mercedes or my BMW or whether I'm just driving my little, you know, or don't even have a car, my worth is I'm still good enough. And I think that's where our society, unfortunately, obviously plays a large role to say only people with money, status, education, you know, whatever all those criteria are, to say that that defines somebody worthwhile. And where we obviously really have to push back and challenge it is you're also saying those ideal standards of beauty. Just because I'm not skinny and in my case, maybe blonde and blue-eyed or whatever our white idealism is, just because I don't look like that doesn't mean I'm not pretty. What is the eye of beauty? So, self love would really encompass saying no matter what, whether it's achievements, whether it's appearances, whether it's possessions or belongings, whether it's education. We you know in our society, not everyone had access to equal education. Now, to say my worth is dependent on my level of education is ridiculous because some people are uneducated in terms of a formal institution, but they still are just of equal worth as somebody with a PhD or whatever means they had to achieve.
0: Can you then tell me, Maria, why do we then struggle with self-love and how is our self-identity then formed?
1: As I said, definitely in terms of our early attachment, our caregivers and their regards towards us. I also work a lot from a narrative perspective, which means that our, or says that our identity is socially constructed. So, again, if you think in our society, it really pains me when I think how many people were told to some extent, whether it's based on skin color, that you were not good enough, or that some people are better than others, or whether it's based on, again, education, or whether it's based on income level. Again, you know, those messages that we get from society. So, obviously, it starts from our own environment where we grow up let's say for argument's sake, relatively poor, but still have parents who really invest and say, listen, you are good enough. You can become something. You are special. You are unique. Whatever the different affirmations are that we need to hear, who can still love us unconditionally, who can still encourage us, who can motivate us. But we can obviously also be influenced by our surroundings and obviously think that, you know, that we could never get out of this, which could engender some hopelessness. And just get those messages from society that this is not good enough, or I'm not good enough in this area, or I'm not as good as this person or that person, who, again, who owns more, who does more. So obviously amongst our peers, I think very important, do I fit in with my peers? So especially as we are young tweenies, I always say, you know, just before we adolescence, that age group is very important. Elementary school, primary school, where we really want to be part of the group and just want to belong. And if you are suddenly developing faster than your friends or slower than your friends, then suddenly people feel, oh, I don't look as well-developed as my friends or I'm a bit more overweight or I'm wearing braces or my hair is not as straight or not as curly or not as this or that. People have all these criteria. Unfortunately, that comparison often leaves us feeling wanted. And then, of course, if there is specific bullying, as I said, for some people, bullying really has left them traumatized. So we often in therapy have to help people to actually work through that trauma. To realise that they don't have to always be watching people with this guarded look and wondering when are they going to rip me to shreds, because not everyone is going to do that. And there will be people who love you just as you are, with extra kilos, or not being a good athlete, or being a bookworm, or wearing glasses, you know, whatever your issues might be. And so definitely those social engagements, as I said, whether we get that, if we don't get enough interest from the guys or the students that can also really affect our sense of self-identity and whether we think
0: we are in that sense lovable or good enough. Another buzzword to come up from the whole self-love revolution, the word self-care. So when Mm -hmm. I imagine self, I always imagine that I need to have money to buy like an expensive candle, like a Joe Malone candle costs like 7,000 rand. Are there cheaper ways and methods that you can practice self-care then? Definitely, yes. I think, you know, all of us have these
1: visions and want to put up the Instagram photos of us lounging at the spa for the day where we've gone for our massages and manicures and pedicures. And obviously, self-care can involve those physical beauty treatments and things like that. Going for a massage is your thing. You're getting your nails done or doing your eyelashes, doing your hair. That's, of course, can be an important part of self-care. But as you say, it does cost money. And I often think, you know, it is very on a superficial level. I sometimes cringe when I think of people saying, oh, they can't pay for therapy, but they're spending more than a thousand rand a month on getting their hair and their nails and their waxing and all those physical things done, whereas therapy would probably have much more lasting effects and on a more deeper, profound level. In terms of just your own work, I think it is important because obviously access to therapy can be expensive and limited. As I said, I think definitely starting off with self-knowledge, so there's a lot of quizzes we live in the internet age, obviously, or even beyond that already, but there's so many free online quizzes, getting to know your strengths and to be able to really work from your strengths. I think that's so important. We often spend so much time focused on what we don't have or the things we are not good at when actually there's many, you know, strengths finder and all these quizzes out there that focuses on what are your strengths and can you actually then use that to capitalize or to gain some employment, to start your own entrepreneurship or your own business for yourself. Can you actually attract friends who value those strengths instead of people who rip you to shreds because of them or don't like those strengths or you continuously feel like you're not good enough because you have different strengths than them? So just developing your self-knowledge, I would say, is very important as a good starting point. And I often encourage people to journal, especially when you go back and you read over your journal entries. It's very interesting to see what are those typical things that I'm thinking So looking at your thoughts, looking at your emotions, what are those feelings that I have that are themes in my life? And what are those behaviors that either irritate me or, as I say, do I always just focus on the things that I do wrong, that I'm not good at? Or can I actually consciously start praising myself for certain things, affirming myself? So then we can start looking at the self-acceptance. So then we can start saying, can I actually acknowledge my strengths and my weaknesses? Can I actually be open to criticism from others without feeling that my whole personhood is now attacked? But can I also actually still maintain a bit of an objective position and say, you know what, I am more than my strengths and weaknesses. So whatever your view is of it yourself as a human being, but to say I've got this emotional side, I've got a physical side, I've got a spiritual side or a deeper level of myself. I've got a psychological side. There's so many areas that I could grow in. Maybe I'm just focusing on one. Physical appearance Maybe I could rather actually focus on developing my brain. I had a client the other day who always said she can't make herself look prettier, but you could at least make herself more interesting. And I thought, isn't that amazing to develop yourself to be a more interesting person? So that guys would want to talk to you because you are interesting, you are engaging, you've got a good general knowledge, for example. So doing things like developing, as I said, starting from that place of self-knowledge. Then looking at self-acceptance, which doesn't mean we deny our faults. We can actually acknowledge our faults or mistakes or weaknesses, but also our strengths. We can accept criticism, but we can also accept praise, which many of us struggle with as women. You know, somebody will compliment us and say, oh, you're looking so beautiful today. And we're like, oh, this old shirt that I'm wearing or these old shoes. And we actually just push aside that compliment. So very important tying into that is our self-talk. Self-talk doesn't cost any money. So just becoming aware of what is your self-talk. Is it predominantly negative, critical? You know, how harsh is your inner critic? Or can you actually? And then once you become aware of it, awareness is always the first step to recovery, we say. So just becoming aware of it, then you can actually actively start changing it and say, you know what? Instead of always telling myself, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done this, I must do this, I have to do this. Could I rather change it to say, Oh, I would like to do more of X, Y, Z. Or oh, I would rather do XYZ. I would prefer it if I did this. Instead of talking to ourselves like we are these naughty delinquents who is always getting it wrong, because that makes us rebellious. It's very interesting.
0: Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Maria. For more on love and its many kinks, check out healthformzanzi.co.za. Now remember, if you are in a medical jam... You can send an email to hello at healthformzanzi.co.za or simply send us an SMS to 076-1320454. I would never blue tick you babes. Yo, romance is a scam, Bodani. Just kidding. That is just my inner cynic talking. And like Maria said, the moments after you decide to commit and fully surrender yourself to your love or you are even more beautiful. That brings us to the end of episode 28 of Sisters Without Shame. Proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. From me, Lulu Ngakani. Have a great week and remember to show your girls some love by sharing this podcast with a friend.